Hello and welcome back to Reason for Hope. I hope you're well and safe. I can't believe this. This is our 10th podcast. For those of you that have been following us, a big thank you. And if you're new to us, welcome. Listen, please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so and give it a good rating. This really helps us to get the word out. I mean, these podcasts are packed with so much helpful and powerful information, and we want to let as many people know about it as possible. Also, please join us on social media where we keep you engaged through music, videos, and daily reflections. And we also have hundreds of videos on YouTube that you need to check out. And by the way, all the music on this podcast is original and created by Array of Hope. So subscribe to us on Spotify and all the other music platforms if you can. That would be awesome. So I want to share something with you that happened to me a few weeks ago. Someone I know was sharing his loss with me. A few of his friends uh, unexpectedly died and passed away. I mean, his pain and suffering was undeniably real. He was questioning why and how could this even happen to him. It was really overwhelming for me, and I felt his pain and his confusion. And I had to sit back, and I really had to pray and discern um, how I could respond to him. You know, in life, these things are going to come in one form or another. So what is the best way to handle them? What's the most godly way to deal with disappointment, which sometimes can lead to anger? We're walking through a valley of tears. And in our culture and in our world, it's within our human nature that we just want to avoid the reality of pain, disappointment, and suffering. We almost want to pretend that it doesn't exist. But that's not true. That's just not reality. We will suffer. We will have heartache. We will be betrayed. We will be hurt. But I think the first thing to help us deal with it is that we need to recognize that those things will happen. It doesn't mean that everything is lost because the evil one always wants to claim victory and we cannot let him do that. It's at the cross, at the point of the pain, the disappointment and the suffering that God truly reveals his power to us most dramatically. We must accept the fact that we will suffer and experience hardship and we are powerless to all these moments in our lives. We cannot control this but we need to embrace the cross. St. Paul says in Corinthians, I came to proclaim Christ and him crucified and nothing else and the power that comes from that. In the end, those that are faithful, God will always bring good out of everything. And that's a 100% absolute truth. It may not be what we expected, but we must remember God is always in control. So today, we're going to continue with our part two of my interview with Christopher West. The theme today is the wedding banquet. Man, this episode has a twist. And you're going to be totally surprised on a part of scripture that we all know that has a much deeper meaning, a much deeper twist. I mean, it's so cool that you're going to be in awe of the brilliance of its teaching. So here we go. And welcome to Reason for Hope. So, do you know, do you know, how much she loves you so? 
Okay, so here we are once again, Dave. It's so much fun and so great to hang with you and discuss the richness of our faith. And today's topic is the wedding banquet. Now, I'm sure our listeners are saying, the wedding banquet? Are we going to a wedding? I mean, what's the deal? (laughs) Uh, Not exactly. Uh, So, Dave, maybe you can enlighten us. What does that mean? Sure. Well, at the seminary where I teach here locally in New Jersey— I teach a class called The Theology and Spirituality of Marriage and Family. And students come into the class expecting me to begin by talking about, you know, the love between a man and a woman, the sacrament of marriage, the family that flows from them, and maybe how spouses and families can grow spiritually together. But the whole first part of the class, I focus on the spousal analogy, that is, how God is a bridegroom who wants to marry his people, mm. and how this is all communicated in the scriptures. Well, let's just say, like, they're kind of taken by surprise. They don't expect me to start off that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I want to hear more about the scriptures, though. I want to hear uh, how, it, how it relates and, and, and why you're taking this approach. It starts with St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In chapter 5, he draws an analogy between the love of the husband and wife with Christ's love for the church, right? And in fact, St. Paul calls this a great mystery, the way this earthly sign of a husband and wife makes visible the spousal love of Christ. So the entire Christian life Indeed, the whole sacramental order, really, can be seen in terms of marriage. This is a quote from the Catechism, Mario. It's really mind-blowing. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. Already, baptism, the entry into the people of God, is a nuptial mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. So this is profound. What, what the catechism is saying is that that relationship of Christ to his church as bridegroom to bride marks the entirety of the Christian life. And so the whole Christian life can be understood that way. Um, in the uh, Theology of the Body, John Paul II really delves into this spousal analogy. Now, this is a little bit deep, but I think it's really important, and I'll try to unpack it a bit. He says this, the analogy of spousal or conjugal love helps to penetrate the essence of the mystery of that is of Christ's love for the church. The mystery remains transcendent in regard to the analogy as in regard to any other analogy. That is no human language, by the way, can ever capture what God's love for us is. At the same time, however, this analogy offers the possibility of a certain cognitive penetration into the essence of the mystery. It permits us to understand this mystery in the manner of espousal love. That's that's pretty crazy. That's pretty heavy. I mean, extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So essentially what you're saying, or or rather what St. John Paul is saying, um, is that we not only understand what marriage is by looking at the love of Jesus for the church, but we understand what our relationship with Jesus is like by looking at what the love between a husband and a wife is, right? That's right. Absolutely. So, Dave, you mentioned that this is really a derivative. It's drawn from the scriptures, right? So maybe you could talk just a little bit more about that. First, let's look to the prophets. This idea of God being the bridegroom of Israel comes right out of the prophets. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, there's two passages that are really uh, powerful, I think. This one from Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband, 
The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Your Maker is your husband. Mm -hmm. And then from Isaiah 62, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so right out of the, the, the prophets, and we can find similar references in the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Hosea, we see this, this image of God being the bridegroom that's going to marry his people. And then, of course, there's the Song of Songs. Now, keep in mind that this has traditionally been understood as a poem of God and his people, right? Mm. So the bridegroom is God, the bride is his people. Now, this is... God, the bridegroom, talking to his bride. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, delectable maiden. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. O oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth." Now we're switching to the bride speaking. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So you've got this whole love-making scene. <laughs> Right? It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. And this is like the passionate love between God and his people, between God and the soul. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, and another one, the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. Uh, but, but what many people don't see is that this is very significant from the standpoint of Jesus' messianic mission. Why? Because the prophets saw the messianic banquet as being a banquet of superabundant wine. So from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 24, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. No more do they drink wine with singing. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has reached its eventide. The gladness of the earth is banished. What does Mary come to Jesus and say? There's no wine. Mm -hmm. And then check this out. Isaiah follows up in the next chapter, 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of of wine, of fat things, full of marrow, of wine, well refined. And he will destroy on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Now, how is the Messiah here depicted? as the one who's going to bring this feast of wine, of the refined wine. What does the steward say? Most people serve the good wine first and save the bad wine for later, but you save the best wine for now. Jesus is giving the refined wine. 
And so this is all a fulfillment. The wedding at Cana is a fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. We could keep going, and I'm, you know, I, I just, and let me just share a few more. I'm just, I just, I, I can't, like, I can't get over it. At the Last Supper, there's many different cups at the Last Supper of wine that are, that are drunk. The last cup is the cup of consummation. Jesus left out that cup at the Last Supper, if you look at the, the scriptures. When he's on the cross, he says, I thirst. Right. And the centurion brings it up and he drinks. Right after he drinks it, what does he say? It is finished. Now, that's an unfortunate translation, in my opinion, because like, if you look at the Douay Reims version of the um, Latin Vulgate, the translation of the Vulgate, Jesus says this. He says, it is consummated. Mm. So he drinks the cup of consummation. He says it is consummated, and he breathes his last. He gives up his life for his bride. And then what winds up happening? What comes out of the side when the lance pierces the side of Christ? Blood and water. Right. There's this, uh, the fathers of the church saw in the blood and the water, the Eucharist is the blood and baptism was the water. This is the church, the new Eve being in a sense created from the side of the new Adam. And if you look at the scriptures where Eve is created from Adam's side, that's the first time when you see um, Adam and Eve referred to as Ish and Isha in the Hebrew. Now, it's, it's interesting. The words Ish and Isha, they, they can be translated as husband and wife from the original Hebrew. So like, here we go. Jesus is the husband. The church springing from his side, the new Eve is his wife. You know, this is just, it, it, it constantly blows my mind. And then just throw in little details. Like for example, at a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom wore a crown. He was the only one to wear a crown. That's how everybody knew who the bridegroom was among the men. Because there were so many people at the wedding. It's like, who's the bridegroom? Mm -hmm. So he wore a crown. Jesus wears a crown at the crucifixion, right? And then the other thing the bridegroom did was the bridegroom at a Jewish wedding was dressed like a priest. He wore a seamless garment that was like a tunic. What do we see with Jesus at the crucifixion? And they were careful not to rip the garment that was without seams. Why does the gospel writer bring attention to the seamless garment? Because Jesus is the bridegroom. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just, man. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, when, when people say, well, the, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of books and it's, sometimes they don't relate to one another. When you go deep, you see the brilliance of how it really connects the old and the new and the new within the old. I mean, it's just uh, Incredible. Even the Song of Songs to me, uh, when I first read that, I said, what, is this in the Bible? Yeah. It's beautiful to understand the connection, you know, the deeper underlying meaning. Um, and it, it just makes you appreciate the brilliance of, of the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh -huh. when, we, when we canonize these books, how they speak to one another and yeah. they build the story. Uh, and, and we just have to take the time to go a little bit deeper to understand how they all connect. Well, like, and, and the story culminates in what? In heaven, in the book of Revelation. Now, That's here, right. Here's a very interesting little tidbit. The English translation of the Greek word for the book of Revelation isn't Revelation. It's actually the apocalypse. Now, when people hear that word apocalypse, they think about cataclysms and the end of the world. But that's not what it meant. The apocalypse, which we translate sometimes as Revelation, was a moment in a Jewish wedding. The, the apocalypse was when the bridegroom 
lifted the veil of his bride and saw her face to face for the first time. The bridegroom and the bride are, in a sense, revealed to one another face to face, right? And so what's the book of Revelation about? It's about when the church in its glory is marrying Christ. In fact, listen to this, uh, this quote from chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the book of Revelation is about the marriage, the heavenly marriage. Mario, that last line, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where do we hear that? Mass. Mass. (laughs) And so what is the earthly participation in the wedding banquet? In the heavenly wedding banquet, the Eucharist is. Yeah. If we just take that in, what that means, that that is the phrase that is said right before we go to receive our Lord. And then what is our reception of the Lord in the Eucharist? But a holy communion where we become one body with our bridegroom. Mm. Yeah. It's very cool. It's almost like he's given us the opportunity to have a sneak preview as to how he loves by the way we love our spouse, by the way we love our children. Uh, and that's just a minute amount of the magnitude of the way he loves. You know? Well, and just imagine, therefore, if we have that love, that passion, that that whole sense of joy that comes from from loving in that spousal way. Can you imagine that that's not even scratching the surface? That's just like a tiny, tiny glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much. This was great hanging and and sharing uh, these uh, really important components of Scripture and our faith. And uh, until next time. So today, I'm going to call a friend of mine, uh, Sister Joan Curtin. She's the head of the catechetical office there in the Diocese of New York, and we've been doing so much work with her over the past five, six years. She's a good woman, a good nun. Uh, Let's see if I can get her on the phone. What is this? Four ringy dingy? Hello. Sister Joan, how are you? It's uh, it's Mario Costabile. Oh, okay, Mario. I'm okay. Can uh, can you can you talk for a minute? I I I have to I have to preface. I am I don't know if you know, but Array of Hope does this podcast. It's called Reason for Hope, and uh-huh. uh, during the podcast, I make a surprise phone call to my friends and ask them theological questions, and that's what I'm doing right now. Are you open for it? Okay. So my question to you is the innate hunger and desire that we have uh, sort of part of our DNA, the desire to seek God, where uh, unfortunately most of our culture doesn't see that or maybe puts desires in other things. Maybe you could comment about that. I think you're, you probably see a lot of that in your work. Yes, I do. And, you know, so many people that are not even churchgoers, have a real hunger 
for spirituality. They don't call it spirituality. They're not quite sure what it is. But there's a deep, deep-seated desire for more, for, for God. And they don't always know how to access God, not realizing that God has already accessed them. So I think part of our challenge is to help people understand that and take people where they are. Take them where they are and walk with them. That's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he met the person where the person was. And I think that's our challenge. How, how, do, we, how do we help them find the more who is mm-hmm. God? Yeah. Uh, how, do you, how do you experience this in your job? I know that, can you offer uh, some hope to our listeners as to what you're, I, I know this is a difficult period, especially, you know, um, in the church and, and trying to offer catechesis to, to kids and, and keeping those programs going. But do you see cracks of hope anywhere? Do you see that, you know, the Lord is working in, a, in different ways or um, really providing different types of opportunities, allowing us to work outside the box? Have you experienced any of that? Well, yes, you know, I think during this pandemic, which has been challenging, you know, for everybody across the board, and there's a great outreach to the parents, and the parents, I think, are key people in this. And, you know, we see people who are, because they'd be trying to work with their children and work with technology, there's more of an openness uh, for help, a more of an openness uh, to the, to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm director of the catechetical office for the Archdiocese, and we're part of the office of the Department of Youth Faith Formation. We've been sending out something called uh, Family Faith, and we've got good feedback on that. Parents like that. It's not, it's not high theology. It's really sharing spirituality. And, and they find that comforting. They find that an open door to talk with their children. And because sometimes it's in the privacy of their home, they have more access to it. You know, you see people who like the live streaming masses. That's bringing some people back. They miss going to church, but they like that opportunity at least to stay in touch in the privacy of the homes. Very fascinating. Yeah, and I, I like the comment that you said about, you know, uh, the parents being a little bit more involved. I mean, look, that that's so important to our church, building the domestic church, building that foundation where parents and, and children are sharing in the faith, growing in the faith together. That's the power. And I think— um, you know, since a lot of families have to offer formation to their families and their children now at home, I think that that was, has been one of the benefits or the surprised outcomes, right? Where families are actually growing together. That's right. That's right. You know, I always say, you know, even when a parent or guardian drops a child off, you know, they used to say, oh, they drop them off courts for religious sake. The fact that they bring them, the fact that they bring them tells you they're looking for something for the child. You know, they, they know that, that the children need need faith. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, Sister Joan, thank you so much for uh, surprisingly taking this phone call. And I wish you all the best. And uh, we'll, we'll see each other soon, I hope, God willing. And, and Mario, thank you for all your leadership and all that you and your team are doing in a way of hope. You're doing terrific things for the, for the people of God. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, it's all the Holy Spirit. It's all, it's all God working through us, right? Absolutely. Amen. Right. Amen is right. Peace, sister. So here's my part two interview with Christopher West. 
so you had a reversions back, obviously. Yeah, Somewhere, this is in so, my, my early twenties. Yeah, I came yeah. back to the church. So I want to I want to sort of light beam right back to that period, Christopher, when yeah. you sort of realized this Polish man, this Pope, was speaking a truth that was re- resonating with you. But yes. what was the actual moment that your Catholic faith became alive? Uh, the point where you sort of crossed the line in the sand and fell in love with Christ and committed yourself to him. What was that yeah. moment like? What was the impetus that drove you to that spot? The the impetus that drove me to that spot was precisely the the, the pain I was in. Hmm. And and the question that that I was yearning for answers to was why did God give me all these desires that have gotten me in so much trouble (laughs) that have caused me so much pain that have caused others so much pain. And I was in a heck of a lot of pain for a 20 year old young guy. And, and that pain compelled me to say, there's got to be something more. And, you know, Jesus said, seek, you will find. I was a seeker. I was looking, I was searching high and low and making a long story short, now we're into the early 90s, I discovered this teaching from this crazy Polish guy named John Paul II, and the teaching was called the Theology of the Body. And somehow this crazy Polish pope was able to put his finger on my deepest questions, my deepest longings, my deepest hungers. And Mario, he was the first person to tell me, and I felt like he was talking right to me. It was like, Christopher, those hungers you've always known your whole life are good and God put them there and they're meant to lead you to an eternal feast. Christianity is not a starvation diet. Christianity is an invitation to a wedding feast. I was learning from John Paul II, what you might call the the spousal mysticism of the church that Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. From beginning to end, the Bible tells the story of marriage. Uh, It begins with the marriage of man and woman, and it ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. And the whole reason God created us as sexual beings, male and female, and called the two to become one flesh, as St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, this is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. Uh, I remember <laughs> you, you and I are, are music fans, and I remember one of the – in my darkest times when I was like 17, 18, 19 years old, the album that I was listening to just over and over again was Joshua Tree by U2. Mm, yeah, great record. And and I had no clue at the time that these guys were – you know, at least a few of them in the band were were believers. I didn't know that, but I knew that there resonated – their music resonated with me. They were singing something that I could relate to. And one of the songs in particular, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. That that just was like haunting to me. I've climbed the highest mountains. I've, I've run through the fields only to be with you, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I'm, I'm, I'm a late, in my late teens, now in my early 20s, and, and that song was like this, a song of quest. Um, Bono himself calls it a gospel song for a restless spirit. Hmm. And, and it's, a, it's a call to keep searching, keep looking. Right. And, and, and this, is, again, is one of the things I learned from John Paul II. I grew up 
with such a false notion of Jesus that somehow he wanted to squelch our desires. And, and I learned from John Paul II, no, no, no. Jesus wants to awaken our deepest desires. The very first thing Jesus says in the Gospel of John is, what do you want? What are you looking for? <laughs> right. Well, there's that song. I still haven't found <laughs> what I'm looking for. Yeah. And a few chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, you're looking for me. And it was in my early 20s, Mario, that that, that biblical truth resonated in my deepest being. Like it was no longer something my parents were trying to teach me. It was no longer something my, my Catholic schools were trying to teach me. It was something that I was seeking and I found. Mm. And I had this encounter with the risen Christ that became a lived experience. And this would have been the summer of 1990. And my girlfriend at the time broke up with me. We had been dating for four years. I thought my future was with her, and all of a sudden my life is very different. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And that's when I said, okay, Jesus, um, I'm giving you the steering wheel. Mm. You you drive the car. I've clearly been driving my own car off a cliff. Um, I want I want you to steer. I want, I want you to lead me. That's another song. But th- that's right. <laughs> Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> that's right. You're exactly right. Uh, but it, in terms of really embracing Catholicism, that came a few years later because I, I was largely influenced by by Protestant theology and and so much of it was so good. You know, the emphasis on a personal encounter with Christ and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. love for scripture. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you a, a turning point in terms of my Catholic faith. I'll never forget this. This was, I think, in 1992. And a friend of mine was coming into the Catholic Church. And I was attending Mass because I was raised Catholic. But at the time, I thought, you know, it wouldn't matter if I was uh, something else, you know, so long as I believe in Jesus. And I was at an Easter Vigil Mass, 1992, a friend of mine coming into the Catholic Church. And he stood up there and he said, I believe and profess everything the Catholic Church believes and professes. And then he was welcomed into communion with the church. And then he received communion in the church. And I saw that like communion, communion, communion. Like he professed communion. He was welcomed into communion. He received communion. And I didn't go to communion that night, Mario, because I realized I was not in communion with the church. I didn't really believe everything the church taught. I was really wrestling in a very particular way with the church's teaching on contraception. And, and I realized for me to be a man of integrity, I either have to come to terms with the church's teaching on contraception, or since I'm protesting that teaching, I need to just be honest and say, I'm a protestant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, I'm going to seek answers. And I, I remember going to a Catholic priest and saying, can you explain this to me? He said, ah, don't worry about that. The Pope, a future Pope's going to change the teaching. And I thought, well, that's not very convincing or helpful. And I went to a, a Catholic married couple I respected. They had a lot of kids. I thought they must not, they must have believed in the church's teaching. They have lots of kids. And they said, oh, Father, so-and-so told John he could get a vasectomy after our last kid. I'm like, come on, can anybody, can anybody explain this to me? Hmm. And uh, 
I finally found a book called Catholic Sexual Ethics written by William May and Ronald Lawler. Little did I know that William May, a couple of years later, would become a professor of mine. But um, so I read this book and it was the first thing that opened my eyes to the logic of the church's teaching and scales fell off my eyes. And I'll tell you, Mario, when I came to understand that the church was right about contraception, I was all in. And it opened my eyes, not just to the church's teaching on contraception, it opened my eyes to the church's teaching on the incarnation, to open my eyes to the church's teaching on the Eucharist. It opened there. And let me just say this as an aside. There is a direct connecting of the dots between the modern rejection of the church's teaching on human sexuality, namely the embrace of contraception, and the denial of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Hmm. There is a direct link. And I experienced it in reverse. I experienced when I came to embrace the church's teaching on contraception, the logical conclusions that follow from that you come to understand the incarnation because you come to understand the meaning of the human body as something that reveals divine mysteries. You come to understand that the, the mystery of male and female and the mystery of human fertility is a reflection and a mirroring of the life-giving love of God in the body. And then Mary's fertility makes sense as what brought the incarnation about. The real presence of Christ in the Eucharist makes sense as the consummation of a marriage. And you could give no more thought to rendering the marital embrace sterile than you could to chewing on the Eucharist and then spitting it out. Hmm. It, it, you, 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 it becomes, the body becomes central to the faith. And that's what our faith is. It is faith in the body of Christ. It's faith in the real presence of Christ bodily at the source and summit of everything we believe is the body of Christ given up for us. I'll summarize it with this. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said it oh so well. He said, the very soul of Christianity is the body. <laughs> hmm. I love it. I love wow. it. I love it. That's what I came to discover uh, with, with embracing the church's teaching on contraception and then I discovered John Paul II and his theology That's of the body. Great. And That's great. I, I knew I'd spend the rest of my life sharing all this with the world. So, Christopher, it, it seems like we're certainly in historic times. I mean, our culture seems confused about many issues. COVID has added so much stress to people's lives. Where do you think the hope lies today in our culture? This is sort of a, a question off a to the side. A ray of hope. <laughs> a ray of hope, right? We got to talk about it. The, you know, the, the biography of John Paul II, witness to hope. Yeah. Right? What is our hope? Here's our hope. There is a banquet that corresponds to the hunger. See, this, this, is, this is the key. Our faith is not a repression of desire. Mm -hmm. Our faith is not a negation of our deepest longings. Our faith is an invitation to the super abundant fulfillment of our deepest longings and desires. This is our faith. In fact, I'm going to read to you the collect from today's mass. And remember, as the church prays, so she believes, right? So this is the, the collect from mass today. 
Listen to this. O God, who have prepared for those who love you good things which no eye can see, fill our hearts, we pray, with the warmth of your love, so that loving you in all things and above all things, we may attain your promises which surpass every human desire. Amen. This, this is our hope. <laughs> this great. is our hope. Yeah. Mario, there's a banquet. You're, the ache, the hunger, the fire, the burning inside of you, that thing we feel in the middle of the night when we can't sleep and it just won't leave us alone, that hunger, even if we've done all the right things and followed all the rules our whole lives, there's still this passion, this fire, this aching thing inside that won't leave us alone. That hunger is called eros. <laughs> and eros is a yearning for the infinite. Pope Benedict XVI says, the very fundamental truth of our humanity is the erotic longing for the infinite, but we can't fulfill it ourselves. That's the thing. There's nothing we can get our hands on that will fulfill our yearning for the infinite. We have to learn how to open that yearning for the infinite to the infinite and receive the gift of the infinite that he wants to give us. He wants to give us himself. He wants to fill us full with all the fullness of himself, the fullness of God. This is our faith. This is our hope. There's Amen. a banquet that corresponds Amen. to the hunger. And that's what we got to tell the whole world. Jesus says, go out into the main street and invite everyone to starve to death. <laughs> that's right. No, that's not what he says. <laughs> right. He says, go out into the main streets and invite everyone to the wedding feast. But if we don't know what that wedding feast is, if we're not in touch with our own hunger, how are we going to invite other people to the wedding feast? And here I, I, I just got to say it because I'm, I'm filled with, I'm filled with a ray of hope. Can I put it that way? Yeah. Look at the story of the prodigal son, which is such a beautiful summary of the whole gospel. What caused the young son to leave? It was his hunger. And it was his false belief that the father couldn't fulfill it. Hmm. So he goes and he feasts on everything else and he finds himself looking to eat the, the food of the pigs. Right. So he comes back to his father's house and his father throws a, a, a robe around him and gives him a gold ring and throws this party. But look at the older brother. The older brother did everything right, followed all the rules, but he never goes into the party. Hmm. That's very scary. See, the older brother is not in touch with his hunger. Hmm. He had reduced living in his father's house to following a bunch of rules. And I'm, yeah. not say, I'm not saying we should dismiss the rules. The point of the rules is to direct our hunger towards the father's house. Right. But if, if you're not in touch with your hunger, then the rules are going to feel oppressive or the rules are going to just feel like legalism or you're going to pat yourself on your back because you followed them. But if you don't, if you're not in touch with your hunger, you're never going to enter the party. See, what brought the son, what caused the son to leave was the same thing that brought him back, his hmm. hunger. Right. Christianity is for hungry people. <laughs> That's great, Christopher. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful, welcome, it's been a brother. joy sharing it, uh, sharing this day with you. Amen. Thank you, brother. God bless you and all your listeners. So that concludes yet another episode of Reason for Hope. So listen, we want you to stay in touch with us throughout the week. 
check us out on social media where we keep you engaged through music, videos, and daily reflections. This podcast is only made possible by donors and supporters of Array of Hope. And you can become part of the Array of Hope family by going to our donation page on our website at arrayofhope.net. So our theme next week is entitled Theology of the Body 123. And our guest will be Dr. Janet Smith. This woman is brilliant. You got to check her out. So I want to thank my co-producer, David Heideck, and our engineer, Jack Garno, for putting all this together. So thanks for joining us today. And there's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next time.